Welcome to Tech Refactored, a podcast in which we explore the ever-changing relationship between technology, society, and the law. I'm your host, Gus Horwitz, the Menard Director of the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center. Our topic today is copyright. Copyright law, some of the history of copyright, and in particular, we'll be talking about the copyrightability of computer software. I am joined today by Zviv Rosen. My name is Zviv Rosen. I am a assistant professor of Southern Illinois University School of Law. Among other things, before he joined the Southern Illinois University School of Law faculty, he spent 2015 to 2016 as the Abraham Kemenstein Scholar in Residence at the United States Copyright Office, which basically means that he spent a year going through the paper archives of the Copyright Office in the Library of Congress, just seeing what he could find and thinking about how that could affect our understanding of copyright law. Zvi has a long history working in copyright. I'll just say it this way. He is the biggest copyright nerd I know. I love him to death for it. I can say that because I've known Zvi for at least a decade at this point. He's certainly an interesting thinker when it comes to copyright history, but the focus of our discussion after we spend some time on copyright history is actually going to be the copyrightability of computer software and the modern history of copyright law and how that led to current understandings of copyrightability in computer software. Let's turn to our discussion. You've spent a fair bit of time bumming around, for lack of a a fancier way of saying it, in copyright archives back at the Copyright Office in D.C., right? Yeah. So if anyone is interested, um, the Copyright Office has two wonderful fellowships. One is for recent law graduates, a Barbara Ringer Fellowship, and one is for more experienced academics. That's for Abraham Kamenstein Scholar in Residence Position. And basically, it's a year at the Copyright Office to do cool stuff. And I followed Bob Browneyes from George Washington, who did a really wonderful study of the post-1978 copyright records. And I said, okay, well, let me compliment that with a pre-1978 records. And I just dove headfirst into musty archives. So I, I have to ask, 1978, you'd think just in terms of years, 1978 through present, we're looking 40 or so years. And there are a lot of years before then, but also possibly more activity post then. Are, are there more records pre or post-1978? There are many, many more records pre-1978. The problem is there's less you can do with them where we are now. So the Copyright Office began digital indexing of copyright, copyright registrations actually in 1972 with a pilot program with the U.S. Navy on some very early computers. As far as I know, the data tapes from 72 to 78 are not usable, but they were able to use all the data tapes from 78 on. So they have an online catalog of registrations, and it's fully digitized from 78 to the present. Before 78, all you have is paper. So you can't play with it the same way. Part of what I wanted to do was to at least get a better sense of what's on the paper, because the next project is going to be making it all digital. So we can turn in a second to a question I should start with, which is, what is copyright law? But since we're going down the historical rabbit hole, any particularly interesting tidbits or uh, things that you found looking through the paper archives? The questions I really wanted to... well. I should caveat, if you're a nerd, there's tons of stuff, tons and tons of stuff. And 
I think you've seen some of my social media posts where I share random tidbits. But big picture, I think the real questions are the relationship of copyright and creation and what the overall number of registrations and the changes over years as a response to different inputs externally reflect. And so I wrote a paper with Richard Schwinn, who's an economist, where we try to model some of that based in part of the Posner paper, a definitely renewable copyright, but we have frankly much better data. And also Rich is an excellent economist. So we had both, we used their models and built our own as well. And we challenged some of their findings and also I think found some new ones. Yeah. So let's uh, build on that and get into this first question of what is copyright? So Copyright, the, these are the legal term, original works of authorship, creative works. If you create something, you can get exclusive use to do certain things with it, share it, reproduce it, and the like for a limited number of years. That's the quick high-level gloss. Uh, you are the much greater expert here. So going beyond that, what, how do we think about copyright? What is the purpose of copyright law? So just like we're in property, there's this sort of standard model where it's a bundle of sticks. Copyright is a bundle of sticks, too, or put another way, a bundle of rights. And copyright is exclusively federal with some asterisks. The biggest one is pre-72 sound recordings. And the federal law is found in Title 17. Section 106 defines that bundle of sticks generally. It's the exclusive right to make reproductions. That's the original quote-unquote, copyright, the exclusive right to distribute, the exclusive right to create derivative works. Derivative works include things like translations, dramatizations, adaptations, etc. Exclusive rights of public performance and public display. And the last one of the six is the exclusive right to digital broadcast of music. In addition to to that, you also have stuff like DMCA, Anti-Circumvention, and Visual Artist Rights Act, which are pseudo-additional exclusive rights. So is what's copyright supposed to protect? Is it about art? Is it about expression? Is it about... uh, We we talk about the First Amendment a lot. It's very important in discussion, uh, in particular nowadays. Is it about First Amendment values? Is it about economic value? If the answer is all of the above, uh, feel free to say that and add more. Well, there's an old lawyer joke. It depends who you're paying. Or rather, it depends who's paying the bill. But I tend to think it's all the above. I think people... There's definitely been arguments... We have the constitutional language. Remember, the Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution has a IP clause, has a preamble. To promote the progress of science and useful arts, Congress may grant limited rights to authors, inventors, and their respective writings and discoveries. So that's been read by many people to be an exclusively economic argument or rationale. But if you look at the time, it was never that simple. There's always been both a sort of moral and economic approach to copyright. And the two, there's an attempt to harmonize them, even though they don't always harmonize. And I think the story of copyright law is in part a story of going in between those two and trying to harmonize them in some way. Uh, So what what you're uh, reminding us is you mentioned 
uh, when we're talking about how we define copyright law. There's a, a federal law, Title 17, the Copyright Act, which Congress has amended and written several times. But the actual copyright right finds its origins in the Constitution itself. And the language there is that Congress can secure these rights. The, they're limited rights. So they're not absolute rights. There need to be some limitations on them. And the exact purpose is debatable. A lot of folks talk in terms of this is about making sure that if I create something, I can monetize it. I can make a living as an artist. But some element is also, hey, this is my stuff. I have some right to control it. You don't have the ability to take my stuff and represent it as yours or present it in a way that I'm not comfortable with because it's a reflection of who I am in some sense. Well, I'm going to partially disagree with you, and I'm going to try to condense this, because this is a very long thing to get into. It's not quite true that copyright finds its genesis in the Constitution, even in America. You have this idea of common law copyright that goes back as far as we can tell. The question in English courts, and uh, Donaldson versus Beckett is one of the last ones, 1774, is did the creation of statutory copyright in England modify the common law right or supplant it or does it coexist with it now obviously we can, i don't want to get too into that then in america you have a wheaton versus peters case in 1834 which held there is a common law right independent of the constitution but it's destroyed by publication and the congressional statute unlike in england created copyright and copyright did not exist post-publication in america but there is under traditional copyright law of a separate right at common law. Nowadays, common law copyright is abolished by the law that's effective January 1st, 1978. But I, I, it shouldn't be said it comes from a constitution because there is common law sort of natural rights stuff that predates that. So that this is a, it's a very old right, a very old concept, which is a bouncing off point to start to bring us to some of your more recent work looking at something that isn't at all old, um, computer software and the role of copyrights in computer software. To get us into this discussion, I want to ask, what is the scope of copyright? What generally can and cannot be copyrighted? Copyright protects all works of authorship, and that's generally interpreted to mean anything that has a creative spark that's fixed in a tangible medium. So the sort of traditional model of that is writing down your thoughts on a piece of paper, but typing into something that is recorded into computer memory is just as tangible for purposes of a copyright act. So if I record myself singing a song on a tape recorder, would that sound? Absolutely. What if uh, I'll, I'll just go through some hypos. What if I record myself describing a smell? What part of that is copyrightable? What's copyrightable is the actual recording. Your impression of a smell is itself it's called an unfixed idea, but you have then fixed it in a tangible medium. In turn, what's protected is not what you said the smell smells like, but how you say it. In other words, the words you use and the sounds you make, that's what's protected. The, put another way, the idea is not protected, the expression is. And I just want to circle back to the First Amendment, because I know you mentioned that. And that's the idea expression dichotomy is the key to harmonizing copyright and the First Amendment. 
that you can never own an idea under copyright, only how it's expressed. So the underlying idea from a First Amendment sort of perspective is always going to be open to interpretation and debate and democratic discourse and dialogue or and it's only I can express it in a certain way. And if there's something creative in my expression, then that is uh, copyright law may apply to that. That's exactly right. And there's a doctrine in copyright law called merger that says if the idea and the expression are so inextricably intertwined that you cannot express the idea without using the expression, the expression is not protected by copyright law. And what about mere facts or uh, the the characteristics of a smell or a list of phone numbers, for instance? It sounds like that's not going to be copyrightable. That's true. So facts are not copyrightable, but the line between facts and creative expression can often be somewhat evanescent. I'm not sure if you saw recently the case about the Sotheby's auction of a dinosaur. And there was a, basically most dinosaur skeletons that are on display are recreations. They don't have all the bones and they do their best they can to try to interpolate for rest. And you get an interesting question. Is someone's attempt to recreate a dinosaur copyrightable expression? I think there's a reasonable argument for yes. They can't own the general idea of how to do it, but clearly you can copyright a sculpture of a, a dinosaur. On the other hand, if all the bones exist in nature, you can't say, oh, I own those, I found them. That's not how copyright works. But there is a weird middle ground in there where if you create parts of it, you may have some protection for what you create. Does it matter how you go about doing that recreation? So I, I can imagine back when folks first started discovering and reconstructing dinosaur skeletons, that there was a lot of legitimate creative interpretations. And we can go back and look at early pictures of what people thought dinosaurs looked like or dinosaur skeletons looked like. And they are very different than they are today. But today, we might use much more scientific approaches based upon our knowledge of anatomy and bone structures and uh, basically really do an algorithm sort of approach to recreating those. So as the scientist or researcher trying to reconstruct a dinosaur skeleton based upon bone fragments or a selection of bones, I am being creative. I don't mean to say there's no creativity involved, but I'm being guided much more by facts and the use of ideas to anchor this in the idea expression idea you mentioned before. Is that going to color how we think about the copyrightability of something like a skeleton reconstruction? So you have, when Justice Gorsuch was nominated to the Supreme Court a few years back, all of us IP types naturally started wondering about his IP jurisprudence. And the main case, the case called Meshworks, where he wrote in a very good opinion saying a 3D scan of a car is not copyrightable because you haven't actually created anything. And so same way, a 3D scan of a dinosaur skeleton is not copyrightable because there's no creativity embodied in that 3D scan. On the other hand, if you start interpreting and given creativity, the line for creativity is extremely low under copyright law. There's a general desire to avoid making determinations of quality. It, the goal is to... Creativity is just to prevent you from getting basically ownership of facts. 
And so I do think you could probably get to creativity pretty quickly once you start applying your own intuitions as opposed to simply algorithms. So let's go to a next step, another really hot topic right now, which I'm, I'm confident Z, that you're going to have a simple answer to this. Um, but what about uh, generative AI and GPT-3 and all these systems that are taking existing images or existing bodies of literature or computer code and using them to generate new code for people to work with? There's a couple of things going on here, and I want to flag two separate things. One is, are the works copyrightable? And two, is RV systems infringing? Because, so just to get to whether, whether the works are copyrightable first, I don't know. The U.S. Copyright Office had its first attempt to register an AI-created work in 1967, and they've been puzzling over the issue ever since. They still haven't reached a definitive conclusion. The general sense, though, is that the word author in the Constitution requires human authorship. This is a petition of the U.S. Copyright Office. But people have pointed out that's a sort of arbitrary line. Why should it be human? Um, the same way we interpret writings to mean computer memory, why must author include all authors that were contemplated in 1790 or 1787 for the clause? I don't necessarily know beyond this general sense that author has to mean something and it has to mean human authorship, but there's this great line from Justice Story in the very first fair use case ever, Folsom versus Marsh, 1841, where he said, in copyright and especially more of any other area of law, the law approaches a metaphysical where the distinctions are extremely fine and almost evanescent. And I think that that's certainly true for AI-created works more than almost anything else. The second half, though, is I think most quote-unquote AI-created works are actually based on mining a huge corpus of human-created material that is copyrightable. Now, under copyright law, an unauthorized derivative work is not cannot be protected by copyright law to the extent it uses that pre-existing work. And I think you can make a decent case that an awful lot of so-called AI-created work are really just unauthorized derivative works of human authors. If that's the case, we're not protectable. And I think you have a weird situation where, and you, I think you know more about this than I do, where AI is a black box where you sort of feed stuff into and you then give it a prompt, and presto, you get for a result. But how do we treat what you feed into the, into the black box? And is the black box an AI creativity machine or an AI infringement machine? And perhaps the answer is, why not both? Well, infringing creativity is still infringing. <laughs> yep. I know uh, listening to folks debate things like generative AI, uh, Dolly, Stable Diffusion, now OpenGPT and GPT-3 and all these uh, different uh, uh, platforms, one of the discussions that frequently comes up or ideas that is brought up, which you mentioned a moment ago, is this idea of fair use. Well, I should ask you to explain a little bit about what fair use is, and then would these be transformative or otherwise protected examples of fair use, do you think? It's tricky. So there is um, a softcore porn site, I promise this is going back to copyright, called Perfect 10. I don't know if it's still around. 
And like a fair number of porn sites, they decided that they could make more money suing people. And they sued companies including Amazon and Google for image search, and a court did hold that Google image search is a fair use. Now, and I guess that because they said this sort of mechanical and transformative use of these images is thus not infringing. Now, to backtrack a bit, fair use is, well, for starters, it's currently being contested for a Supreme Court in the Warhol versus Goldsmith case. And what we're going to get in a few months may change my answer substantially. But the statute, section 17 U.S.C. 107, does lay out four elements which are non-exclusive. Courts can add more, although they rarely do, to fair use, which is the purpose and character of a use, the amount of substantiality of a use, the nature of a copyrighted work, and market effect of use. Now, it depends. I mean, if you're a painter, you might say, well, and courts have said the market effect is the most important. Courts have also held a purpose and character. It means whether, whether work is transformative, and that's most important. And what transformative means is actually at the core of a Warhol versus Goldsmith case. So that's the area where we're definitely going to see some, some change. I think market, both of those terms have been used and frankly abused in ways that could go any way when you're talking about AI. My intuition is that if you are taking someone's entire life's work and feeding it into a computer, it seems a little perverse to just call that all fair use if a result is to produce more artworks. If a result is to do a study of a person's art and come to algorithmic conclusions for research purposes, I think that's a pretty good fair use case. But if you are running, say, an advertising-supported website that generates AI artwork and you create them by feeding artists' life work into it, I'm a little skeptical of that being fair use. But others say, well, it's transformative and transforms what they did, so why? So it should be fair use. So I, if I'm an artist and I have a distinctive style and I'm, I'm making a decent living, generating paintings, other artwork in my distinctive style, and one of these generative AI systems learns my style, and suddenly anyone can say, draw me a picture, produce a picture of uh, an apple, a school bus, a, a sunset in the style of Gus Hurwitz, and you get a Gus Hurwitz style and quality output. As the artist, I'm going to say, that's absolutely going to devastate my livelihood because I specialize in charging $5,000 for works that look like my style, and suddenly anyone can generate uh, them on their own. It's funny you say style, because the case I immediately thought of is a case that a lot of non-lawyers heard of, a Blurred Lines case, where, among other things, Robin Thicke gave some testimony that was, as I understand it, not necessarily helpful to his case. And the court ended up holding that the... um, song Blurred Lines, infringe a copyright in a song, Got to Get It Up, I think, because it copied the artist's unique style, even though there was no actual copying of any literal music. Um, if that's the case, why not for AI-generated artworks? Of course, the problem is for a lot of these, and once again, you know more of this than I would, who do you sue? I'm, I'm just going to sue the computers. I'm tired of the computers. Let's sue them. <laughs> no, no, no uh, uh, just to be clear, uh, you cannot just sue a computer. 
generally you need to, you want to sue someone with money. Um, and that's generally going to be a person. I've taken this off track because really I asked you on to talk a bit about copyright in computer software, but in some ways we are completely on track because software is computer code, which is generally a expression of an algorithm or just an algorithm. And that's kind of what AI is. So can you tell us a little bit about the history of copyrights in computer software and why this is a somewhat thorny area of copyright law? Sure. So I've talked a little bit about pre-78 and post-78 copyright. And part of that is before that, the last major revision of the copyright law was 1909. So when computers were being developed, they were dealing with a statute written in the first decade of the 20th century, which was a very progressive statute for when it was written, but hopelessly outdated by the 60s. And the Copyright Office started getting requests to register software for copyright and didn't know what to do with it. There were a number of attempts to register aerospace tracking software, and the Copyright Office mostly sat on those who didn't know what to do with them. But then uh, John Banzeff, who's now a professor at George Washington Law School, when he was a law student at Columbia, he wrote a program and published it in a Columbia student newspaper for the law school and then sent it to the Copyright Office registration. And the Copyright Office said, oh, we know what to do with a newspaper contribution. But accordingly, computer programs became textual works in a meaning of a copyright law, and it still is to this day. If you want to register a software program for copyright, you send the Copyright Office the first 20 pages and the last 20 pages of your code. And you'll get a registration for the whole thing. I had uh, John Riley from the U.S. Copyright Office as a guest in my copyright lecture this week, actually. Very generous of him. He gave a wonderful half-hour talk to the students, and he talked about software and mentioned they still do that. And I'll, and I'll admit, I said out loud, wait, you still do that? Um, <laughs> but they do, because what else are they going to do? I mean, and especially when you consider part of a purpose of a corporate office to be an office of record and be part of the Library of Congress is to bring in cultural treasures to the, copyright, to the Library of Congress and keep track of copyright for purposes of litigation. I mean, what are you going to do? Send a, form, a digital format that's likely to degrade? At least paper doesn't degrade well, as fast anyway. I have so many questions about this. Um, I I want to start with why was this ever an issue? Uh, computer code, it's generally written down or you can write it down at least, even, even if it's uh, back in the old days on a punch card that's written down in a, a sense. And surely back in the 1950s, you could copyright even before the current Copyright Act, you could copyright a wide range of written forms of expression. So why was there ever any debate over this? Well, when you mentioned punch cards, of course, there is a major copyright dispute about copyrightability of player piano rolls, and the Supreme Court held under the 1870 Act, they could not be registered. They were not copies in the meaning of the law. Then under the 09 law act, they started to do it sparingly. But punch cards are a surprisingly thorny question about because they're only machine readable. It was only when it, the 76 act, effective 78, that clarified that. But much more important to answering your question is the fact that because we have this idea expression dichotomy, you cannot register a system, an algorithm, 
a machine, you cannot register something functional for copyright. There is a sense of that's what patent is for, not copyright. You shouldn't be using copyright to protect your inventions because copyright is a much longer term and a much more limited term. Copyright allows for independent creation, for instance. Copyright is very focused on are you copying or not? So things that are prohibited under patent law are permitted under copyright law, but copyright lasts much longer. And there's a concern about giving copyright protection to inventions. And that's still part of the statute to this day, Section 102. So the, the next question is, if we need to have computer software presented in some human-readable form, what does it mean to copy that? If I, let's say, so uh, there are many different computer programming languages. There's one called C, there's one called Basic, another called Rust, another called Python. Let's say you write some code in C and you register that copyright, but I look at your code and without ever writing the C code down, I translate it into Python. Have I made a copy? Have I infringed upon your copyright? Well, let's just clarify first, the human-readable requirement has been largely erased by the current law. But um, it depends what you do, honestly. It depends whether you're copying, or you, whether you're copying or, or whether you're rebuilding. So if you see my code, or more likely, let's be honest, your code, and you rewrite it having seen the code in Python, that's almost certainly copying and being the copyright law, because you are... It's almost, it's almost a translation. It's a derivative work. On the other hand, if you see a working program and say, I can do that and write your own program, that is not infringing generally because you can't copy the function of a program. All you can copyright is the way it's expressed. And if you express it in your own way, that's fine. There's asterisks abound. If you do a complete non-literal copy of computer program that's completely identical down to brass tacks, that might still be infringing. But generally speaking, if you write a, a program that does all the same stuff, it's not infringing. So how do we prove this? So you, you said that today, when I register a copyright with the Copyright Office, I send in the first and last 20 pages of my code. How do... I prove that someone has copied my code if they take code from the middle of the program that's not within what I registered. In practice, it generally comes down to discovery and litigation. Um, I think for Oracle versus Google case about the copyright in a Java programming language is a good example of that, where Google provided ample evidence if they had created a clean room copy of the Java development kit, I think. I don't remember exactly, but it's going to be going to come down to discovery. Copyright infringement is based on two steps. Is there access and is there a substantial similarity? And substantial similarity is a fairly complicated analysis, but you have to show access first. If someone doesn't have access to something, they couldn't have copied it. Mm -hmm. So I could take a look at the machine code, the compiled source code that the computer reads, and does that constitute access? Or do I need to have access to the uncompiled source code? It's, it's going to be fact-specific, but my understanding is it's usually the machine code. 
unless the access is going to depend whether it's going to depend whether you can read it or not or whether what you're reading is usable to you basically so i mean if you could, if you read something and have access to it in a way that would enable you to copy it somehow you have access to the work if you're looking at ones and zeros and you sit and you're not a robot it's probably not access yeah this is just so fascinating and i guess i'm kind of still dwelling on we can just go back to the tape recorder example. We started the conversation. I asked if I record myself speaking a new poem, is that copyrightable? And what is it that's being copyrighted? Is it my expression that is being fixed on the tape? Or is it the fixation on the tape uh, that is the thing that is being copyrighted that we would use kind of as the, the reference of what I created? And it's just a fascinating dichotomy how those two things are so fundamentally interwoven in this uh, area. That's absolutely true. I mean, it's very much a thing in music, too. And one interesting thing is the actual physical tape is nothing for copyright law. But certainly in music, the master tape is a big deal. But ownership of the copyright and ownership of a master tape are two entirely different things. One is a physical shadow, and one is the IP. And the IP is the expression recorded onto the tape, not even physically, but rather the incorporeal ideas that are fixed, which, of course, is a bit oxymoronic. But the fixation is a requirement of copyright, but the fixation itself is not what's protected. I've got so many more questions, and we're, we're going to need to start wrapping up our discussion pretty soon. I have to ask, you mentioned that there's a, a tension between using copyright to protect something like computer code and using patent law to protect something like computer code. And they have different characteristics, both in terms of what we call subject matter, what we're allowed to copyright, what we're allowed to get a patent on. And there are functional differences. Patent law gives you exclusive rights for a much shorter period of time than copyright law. And it's a different, to use a, a phrase you used before, bundle of sticks, a different set of permissions or things that you have the exclusive right to do. So I'll, I'll just ask, and I know there isn't a simple answer, but what, what's a simple answer to why don't we use patent law to protect computer software instead of copyright law? I think part of the answer is that there's a lot of different kinds of computer software. And I think copyright law is a very good fit, for instance, for computer games, for any kind of entertainment product. Patent law is probably a much better fit for like a AI engine. And there's a lot of in-between. I think in practice, patent law has become increasingly inhospitable to software, and software has, as a result, really taken up residence in copyright. I think that if we had to do it all over again, we probably would do something more akin to a sui generis, which means sort of from scratch system for software, sort of like what we have for semiconductor mask works, which is if you design a computer chip, the Copyright Office administers a unique system for you where you get a mix of copyright and patent protection for your chip design for a shorter period than copyright gives you. Something like that for software, if we had done it 50 years ago, might have made sense. I think we are in way too deep and worth way too much invested in software copyright now to turn back. The last question I'll ask is a putting it all together sort of question. And I'll ask this very broadly. Why does it matter? 
what are the impacts of the decisions 50 or so years ago where the Copyright Office started to allow computer software to be copyrighted and then the subsequent 76 Act being more permissive and a modern approach to software copyright. Why is this also important and interesting? Well, I think the software industry is a huge part of the U.S. economy and a huge part of U.S. exports and the global economy. It's only growing. And this has become the main mechanism for legal protection. And not just so Microsoft and Oracle and others can monetize copyrighted works. I mean, the whole idea of open licenses and various GNU licenses and everything else is premised on copyright. I mean, the idea of open source software, it's a copyright idea. It's not, it's, a, it's not an anti-copyright idea. It's a way of actually using copyright to enforce and encourage both boundaries and freedom in creating new works. I think that there's always the what is past is prologue thing, which is interesting and fun, but there's the old lot. History doesn't just repeat itself. It, it sometimes rhymes. And D doesn't that violate copyright law, perhaps? <laughs> uh, a simple rhyme itself can't violate copyright. Okay. Um, a, a rhyme in time. Uh, may, <laughs> exactly. Um, but, and yeah, I think for, for the sense that what has happened before will happen again, we're, we are going to continually see new innovations. And since we are dealing with a framework that was literally developed in 1709 or 1710, depending which calendar you use, to regulate creation of software. We have to understand how it has worked to understand how it's going to work. So I'm going to really end with uh, one last question and put you on the spot. You are a copyright historian, so you look to the past a lot. But I'm going to ask you to make a prognostication because we will try to have you back on a later to talk about the pending Warhol case at the Supreme Court. What do you think is going to happen in that case? I'm putting you on the spot here. I don't mind at all. I should caveat, I filed an amicus brief on behalf of respondent Lynn Goldsmith in that case. What I think what's going to happen is going to make no one totally happy, but I think probably make Goldsmith a little happier. Can you explain the, the, oh, uh, the parties? Yes, I'm sorry. So Andy Warhol, I think most of your listeners are familiar with, artist. He created uh, the so-called Prince series based on a photograph taken by Lynn Goldsmith of the artist Prince. He was taken in 1981. Warhol created it for one of, I think, Time or Life, I'm not sure. Um, one of those magazines. And he had a license from Goldsmith to do that. Then, without a license, he created 15 additional paintings of Prince, or really silk screens, and then later on, his estate licensed them, including a Condé Nast commemorative issue. The use of one of the so-called orange prints in a Condé Nast Prince commemorative issue after his death in 2016 has become the pith of the case, that was it a fair use or not? And you're getting into really interlocking questions of was anything Warhol did basically with this Prince photograph fair use because it was transformative one way or another or not. And I think the court is going to say no. The standard that's being argued that the Warhol estate is arguing for that anything Warhol did was transformative pretty much is going to be rejected. The court is going to put guardrails on transformative use. I suspect we're going to focus it more on comment on the original work, because that's where it comes from. There is the 
rap group Two Life Crew did a parody version of a song Pretty Woman. The Supreme Court in the Acuff Rose case held that that was a fair use because it was transformative, but also because that transformation required use of the original to comment on the original. I think the court is going to re-emphasize that element of Acuff Rose case in the Warhol case. Well, Z. Rosen, it's been a pleasure chatting with you, both historically and looking forward. Uh, I really hope that we'll be able to have you back on later to talk about the Andy Warhol case and other current copyright issues. Any closing thoughts? No, it's always a pl- it's always a pleasure to talk to you and to talk about some of these issues. And it's, frankly, it's really fun to sort of get out of my comfort zone and not just talk about copyright to people who know about copyright. <laughs> well, we uh, thank you for uh, doing that with us today, uh, Z. Rosen. Until next time, have a good one. You too, guys. Thank you. Tech Refactored is part of the Menard Governance and Technology Programming Series hosted by the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center. The NGTC is a partnership led by the College of Law in collaboration with the Colleges of Engineering, Business, and Journalism and Mass Communications at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Tech Refactored is hosted and executive produced by Gus Hurwitz. James Fleegey is our producer. Additional production assistance is provided by the NGTC staff. You can find supplemental information for this episode at the links provided in the show notes. To stay up to date on the latest happenings within the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center, visit our website at ngtc.unl.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at UNL underscore NGTC. Oh,